Uh, we've been having testimonies each week about the principles that we've been studying. And uh, so when you see these folks that have made some of the videos, they're all members of our church family. Encourage them. Thank them for being willing to uh, share their stories. And so we're going to, uh, before Trent preaches, listen to a, uh, a story from one of our brothers. Parents separated when I was two. My dad left. I met him again when I was 12. All I really remember about my childhood is just being angry, mad all the time. I got violent. And in that violence, I, at 18, I ended up in prison and went to Angola. I stayed down there for a while. I got out when I was 30. I met a beautiful woman, had two kids with her. I mean, we had a good life. And then I got too comfortable and I started doing methamphetamines. It just, I ended up dragging my wife down with me. We both became addicts and we lost our kids. We lost our home, we lost vehicles. I was a former on the pipeline making great money. And I just lost everything and this, this new demon was in me. In my whole life, I've always been the meanest, the, the toughest, the strongest. You know, I've always been this, this monster. And I, I think at that point, I was really just tired of it. After another month or so of being in the homes and being around my forever family that I have now, I hit my knees. And it was awesome. It was the first time ever I won by giving up. You can't love with anything in your heart of contempt or anger or anything like that. So I have to give it all away. And doing so, I had to make amends and ask for forgiveness for a lot of things. My wife was, uh, I had several affairs with my wife. I beat my wife uh, during my addiction while I was high. I was I was insane, and I was leaving her one time, separated, and she was, she tried to kill herself, okay, she took a handful of pills, shot a bunch of dope, and she went to the ground flopping, and I watched her do all of it, and was telling her to go ahead, so I searched her pockets and I found her drugs and I went in the bathroom and I shot the remainder of her drugs while I waited on her to die on the floor. Whenever my feet touched the ground again, I don't know how long it was, um, I went in there and she wasn't, she wasn't going to die. She, she was going to make it through it. So I called her parents and said, I think she tried to kill herself and then took her to the hospital. This is the only person aside from my kids I can think of I've ever really truly loved. She had no idea I did all that. She she didn't know because she was out of it. But I knew. And thus, after when she came out of the hospital, I destroyed our marriage because of the guilt and because of the pain I felt by allowing my wife to take a chance of dying. And I almost lost her. I wanted her to go at one point. And I felt so much guilt and so much anger and just, I hated myself, so I purposely destroyed our marriage. I did everything there was to make this woman hate me, and she didn't. And I finally got the nerve to tell her what I did after I went to rehab and tried to do right, and I told her. 
I sat her down and I explained to her what I did. And she looked me dead in my eyes and says, it's fine, baby, I love you. Yeah. That was a pretty hard one. That, um, it's like a whole new me as soon as she said it was okay. And it was like everything I've been carrying around, all of the bitterness and fighting and arguing, everything was created from me. And as soon as I made that amends, we were completely different people. On my end, it was everything. And for her to say, it's okay, baby, I love you, just, it changed. It changed me completely. And that's God. He took all that out of me and he filled it with love again. You know, and that's, that's can't express the power of amends. Necessary, Today we are continuing a sermon series called WFR Celebrate. This is what we believe here at White's Ferry Road Church, that everybody under the sound of my voice has a hurt, habit, or hang-up. Everybody does. And it's our hurt, habits, and hang-ups that can sometimes put us in positions where we're committing sins and doing behaviors that hurt other people. So today we're going to be talking about renewing relationships. Did David not do a great job at sharing his testimony about relationship renewal? Let's give him another hand. Takes a lot of courage. Takes a lot of courage to tell uh, your story that honestly in front of a group of people this size. In Celebrate Recovery, this, this part of the process is, is the amendment making process and the statement here that corresponds with this part of the process is this, that we all need to evaluate all of our relationships. We gotta offer forgiveness to those who have hurt us and make amends for the harm we've done to others, except when to do so would harm them or others. One of the earliest families we read about in the scriptures is Isaac's family. Isaac and Rebecca, they end up having twin boys. Their names are Jacob and Esau. And these are brothers that had some major disagreements. And my conjecture is this morning that sometimes it's family that presents the greatest obstacle for the amendment-making process. The more I'm emotionally invested in someone, the more I love a person, the harder it can be to make amends. So let's pick up our text in Genesis chapter 33. I'm going to start in verse 1. Follow along with me if you would. The Bible says this, Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided his children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. 
He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, they're the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. And Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, said Jacob. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I've found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you've received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me. And I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. The first thing I want to focus on here in this story is the surrender of Jacob. The surrender of Jacob. When Jacob sees Esau in verse 3, I've got it up on the screen for you here. He bows down to the ground seven times as he approaches his brother. It's obvious that Jacob is surrendering some things as he is bowing down within eyeshot of his brother Esau. The first thing that Jacob is surrendering is his plan. Now, what you don't know, because I didn't cover the history, which I'm going to do a little bit right now, is that Jacob had mommy issues. Jacob had mommy issues. Okay? If you would read the story from Genesis 27, you would see that his mom, Rebecca, sort of played favorites. She really did. Esau was more of a hunter-gatherer type. He was out in the woods, killing big deer, mounting them on the family wall, the 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 shining star of his family. And Jacob was a little bit more of a mama's boy. So in this story, I've always identified more with Jacob. Okay? Thank you for not laughing at that, that I'm from Kansas and I don't know how to shoot stuff or kill things. And so... Jacob really did, though. He dwelt mostly with his family and was probably closer to his mom than Esau. And so one day, Rebecca, Jacob's mom, hears Isaac, their dad, telling Esau, son, I'm ready to give you your blessing. The father would bless the children in this in this time of history with the spoken word. And so Jacob, uh, Isaac told Esau, prepare for your blessing. So Esau was going to go out and kill some game and prepare this to eat for his father. And his father was going to give him the blessing. Rebecca says, okay, Jacob, I just heard that Isaac, your dad, is preparing to give Esau the blessing. So I want you to go out and bring me two goats. And I'll actually make a meal for your dad that you can pretend is a meal you made. And you can say, it's me, Esau. And because your dad's eyesight is failing, he's not going to know the difference. And Jacob actually tries to argue with her and say, Mom, this really isn't right. But she says, go ahead and do it anyway. Jacob ends up doing this thing, deceiving his father and stealing the blessing of Isaac. And it moves Esau to the point of being homicidal. It really does. Actually, in the scriptures, Esau says, as soon as I get the chance, I'm going to try to kill my brother when the time is right. 
And Rebecca, with her maternal instinct, understands that now her favorite son, Jacob, is in trouble. And she says, Jacob, you got to get out of here. you got to take your stuff and you got to go. And so Jacob is on the run. And some of us are in that same exact point in our lives here today. We've committed a wrong. We've deceived someone. We've stolen something from someone. We've pretended to be someone that we are not. And we've been caught red-handed. And rather than making amends and making the situation right, we avoid it and we leave the premises. We get out of the eyesight and earshot of the person that we've offended simply because it's easier to avoid the confrontation than it is to really try to make things right. And Jacob had a plan, and the plan was to follow through with his mom's direction that she get out of Esau's reach and stay that way as long as he could. But in Genesis chapter 31 and verse 3, a couple of chapters before our story this morning, the Lord says something to Jacob that would have fallen on Jacob's ears differently than it would fall on ours. He says to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, I'll be with you. Now, for Jacob, that meant a couple of things. He was going to get to see some family he wouldn't have gotten to see in a long time, his mom and dad. But there was somebody he would get to see that he really wasn't looking forward to seeing. And that was the brother that he had deceived. And so Jacob's first got to surrender the avoidance plan... He's got to surrender the plan that he had in place to protect him from Esau, which was to avoid Esau. He's got to surrender that to the Lord God, knowing that the last time my brother was close enough to me to kill me, he would have tried to do it. But the reality is, friend, that God's not content with letting you run from your problems the rest of your life. And if, if, if you can run from them, then maybe you can for a little while. But the truth is, you cannot hide from them. So wherever you're at in that process, however far you're trying to remove yourself from your problem, I want you to know that, what, that, that it's quite possible that God is calling you to stop running and to go back to that place where you caused wrong and make it right. And that's some of what Jacob's surrendering seems to suggest is that his plan of avoidance was not more important to him than God's plan of renewal. So not only does he surrender his plan, but Jacob also surrenders his pride. Again, we're not, I don't have time to get into all the history here, but Jacob was a blessed man. Jacob was a very blessed man. He works for a guy named Laban for a while and ends up inheriting most of Laban's riches simply because he follows God's direction. So Jacob becomes wealthy. He marries uh, two ladies, as the story turns out, ends up having men servants and maid servants, cattle, two camps, enough for two camps in the story. This was a this was kind of a self-made sort of a faithful guy. And when he sees the brother that he offended, he's got every reason to kind of think, make amends. This guy should be bowing down to me. I'm the one who was blessed by our father. I was our mom's favorite. I've been blessed by God. I actually wrestled with the angel of the Lord and survived and was blessed. Who is this guy to come at me with these 400 people when I've obviously got the Lord Almighty at my back? You see, it's been a while since Jacob offended Esau. It's been a while. 
And in the time that's passed, Jacob's really done a lot of maturing and growing. But the fact that it's been a lot of time passed doesn't mean we don't have to go back and make amends. Just like it meant Jacob still needed to go back and make amends despite the time that passed. And not only did he need to make amends, but he couldn't make amends with the spirit of arrogance. With a spirit of arrogance. He had to have a spirit of humility. Jacob was a self-made guy. He was mature at this point. He was connected with the Lord God. He had been blessed. He had every reason to be arrogant, and yet he chose to be humble. And the reason some of you have been unsuccessful in your attempts at reconnecting or renewing relationships is because of your arrogance and your pride. You're walking into an amendment-making process not assuming that it's your humility that mitigates how successful you are at making those amends. I'm here to tell you right now that the story could have gone a lot differently had Jacob not taken the time to really demonstrate that he was sorry, that he was humble. That's, That's ultimately the stance of Jacob. This was a guy who understood that the wrong he did was just that. It was wrong. So we get an insight of his attitude in verse 5 here. The Bible says this. Esau asks Jacob, who are all these people with you, man? They haven't seen each other since Esau was betrayed by Jacob and wanted to kill him. And so he's like, man, who, 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 you got a whole camp of people with you. What, what's all this about? Jacob says, brother, these are the children that God has graciously given your servant. So the two words right there that to me are meaningful in the amendment-making process are this idea of God's grace, or the word grace, graciously, and, and Jacob's identification of himself as servant. As servant. This is a guy who is grateful for God's blessing in his life. Jacob has an attitude of gratitude. I want you to say that with me. An attitude of of gratitude. Let's say that again. An attitude of gratitude. Here's the truth about humility. That you cannot have humility without an attitude of gratitude. You cannot do it. If you for a second think that you're responsible for God's blessing and mercy in your life, how can you be humble? How can you be humble? You can't. But friend, I'm here to tell you that it's God's favor and mercy that's given you every good thing you have in your life. And I hope you believe that. And if you don't, then I hope that you'll start to believe that this morning. You see, that's the power of gratitude is when a person is grateful, it doesn't matter their circumstance. They can find gratitude and humility and joy no matter what they're going through. Jacob is literally afraid for his life. He demonstrates humility, and we know that it's his gratitude that allows him to be humble because he identifies himself here as a servant. Esau, look, the wrong that I did, inflicted on you, makes me no better than one of your servants. The power of gratitude not only lets us be humble, but it also leads to an accurate self-assessment. An accurate self-assessment. It's kind of funny. My wife and I have this joke, my hair is thinning. And so she'll like make these comments like, babe, you look just like Brad Pitt today. You know, I'm like, thanks, babe. You know, I just got to get my hair right. 
So I go to my hairdresser. I'm like, look, I'm done with Brad Pitt. I need Channing Tatum. Can we do a Channing Tatum this week? And, you know, she's awfully nice. She'll, she'll agree. Yeah, we can do Channing Tatum. I walk out. My wife's like, man, you look just like Channing Tatum. And my wife is an honest woman now, so if she's saying it, there's got to be some measure to it. But seriously, it's, it's silly to think when I look in the mirror that I'm seeing Channing Tatum stare back at me. No matter how badly my imagination wants to influence that thought. But this is the truth, you guys. And I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be humorous about a deadly serious issue in the church today. Is there are a lot of people walking around ungrateful and arrogant, assuming that they're the cause of the good things they have in life, which makes them inaccessible. If that's you, you're in, people can't get in touch with you. So the power of gratitude allows you to accurately assess your own self and allows you to also be humble. No way could Jacob have come to Esau in a spirit that reconciled their relationship had he not been aware of God's grace in his life and had that awareness caused the kind of gratitude that allowed him to be humble. Now, people ask me all the time, you know, what's the secret to finding gratitude? Really, what are the nuts and bolts? People who are motivated to be grateful, people who understand the utility in being grateful. They, they, they know it's a need that they have. They need to be grateful. How, Trent, does that process work? Well, the first thing I want to say is that this is not about what we have. Gratitude is not about what we have, but in being content despite what we do not have. Gratitude's not in what you have. It's about being content despite what you do not have. Here's the other truth, and then I'm going to give you the exact how-to with this that's scripturally based. Gratitude is not about the physical world. It's about the psychological and the spiritual world. Gratitude's not about the physical world. It's about the psychological and the spiritual world. One of my favorite books is called Man's Search for Meaning. It's written by a guy named Viktor Frankl. The first half of the book is his autobiography of living through the Auschwitz prison camp in Nazi Germany during the reign of the Third Reich. One of his famous quotes from the book is this, The last of the human's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. What does the Bible have to say about that? You'd have to look no further than Philippians chapter 4. And I hope this is review for you. The Apostle Paul in the 8th verse says to the church in Philippi, Finally, after I've taught you all that I've taught you in this letter, finally, here's the secret. I want you, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whenever... Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, do. And the God of peace will be with you. The choice, friends, is yours. Should you choose to be grateful, you can be. Should you choose to be ungrateful, that's your choice too. How do you do one as opposed to the other? You choose what to focus your mind on. And I want to tell you, in the world we live in, there's plenty of negative stuff to think about. So you're going to have to be very disciplined and calculated if you're going to try to gain control of your mind 
and think about only the good stuff. But that's God's plan for you is to become grateful. Let's pick up our story again here uh, in Genesis 33. We see the spirit now of Jacob in, in Genesis 33 and verse 10. Uh, Jacob says, no, please, if I have found favor in your eyes, please accept this gift from me, please. So Jacob has not come to the amendment making process with empty hands. Jacob hasn't come to the amendment making process with empty hands. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. You got to hear this. If you read the context, if you go to Genesis 27 and you read the context of the story and the history and the background, I honestly believe that Jacob is not fully at fault for his betrayal of Esau. That's what I believe. I think that Rebecca is mostly responsible. I think that Rebecca is mostly responsible. This is a mother who tells what I would argue her favorite son to betray his father and brother. And Jacob then argues against those instructions saying, if I do this, I might be cursed. And Rebecca says, no, let the curse fall on me. You just do what I'm telling you to do. Rebecca makes the soup. Esau was a hairy guy. So she says, put some animal fur on your skin. So if your dad touches you, you'll, sound, you'll feel like Esau. Jacob goes in there, does what she says. Under her manipulation and direction. And so when he's, when he's seeing Esau in this moment, my, my view is that Jacob is not completely responsible. Now think about your life and the situations you've been in where you've harmed another. Okay? Sometimes the harm you've inflicted is not entirely your responsibility. Okay? Sometimes the harm that you've inflicted is maybe not completely your responsibility. But that doesn't remove the mandate to make amends. Well, preacher, what are you saying? If if someone has unjustly inflicted pain on me and I really didn't do a whole lot to merit it, I mean, maybe I played a small role, but it wasn't all my responsibility. Do I really have to go and make amends? I think Jacob could have walked right up and said, look, Esau, I'm really sorry. But we both know that it was our mom that influenced me to do that. So I don't really see how you can be mad at me for this. Or here's a way to recontextualize it differently. If I were to walk up to my wife and say, babe, you know what? I'm sorry I had the affair. But if we would have been sleeping together a whole lot more, I think you and I both know I wouldn't have strayed from the relationship. Or I go into work and my boss sits me down for a mean talk and I say, listen, before you say anything, I think you and I both know that if you weren't so harsh and negative and critical and condescending, I wouldn't be spreading gossip all around the office about you. And that's our first instinct is to rationalize and justify our behavior, particularly if it's not completely our fault that we've done something wrong or inflicted pain on someone else. In other words, it seems unjust to offer restitution if it's not 100% our fault. Let me bring your mind to... uh, First uh, Peter chapter two. I'm going to start reading here in verse 20. Okay, I want you to get this. I want you to jot this down. The Bible says this. Friends, how is it to your credit if you suffer for doing good and you endure it? 
Listen, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is commendable before God. To this you were called. You know what kind of a life Jesus wants you to live? The kind of life I'm about to describe. This is why you were called. Because Christ Jesus suffered for you. He left you an example that you should follow in his steps. What, what example was that? He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He was innocent. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. Jacob, like Jesus, like you, should be willing to tolerate a little bit of injustice. You should be willing to tolerate a little bit of injustice. You don't have to walk around as your own judge, jury, and executioner condemning everybody that inflicts a little bit of pain on you and then letting the world know of your innocence and condemning those who did, in fact, unjustly persecute you. And I think in this situation with Jacob, he would have been justified in saying, man, Esau, look, dude, I've been in therapy for like 15 years. Mom was messed up. She had all this psychological stuff. I think she was bipolar. She really was, She really made me feel like the favorite, and that made me feel entitled and insecure. And I couldn't say no. And, and if you read the rest of Jacob's story, I think he developed some sexual behaviors that are a result of his family of origin problems. Okay? He would have been justified in saying that, and I think to some extent, Jacob was a victim here too, if you're comfortable with me saying that. But does this cause Jacob to back away from really walking his talk? No way. He doesn't offer an explanation. You know, he could have, look, man, my therapist says, as a matter of fact, here's this letter I wrote you. Okay, I've been writing this for years. Okay, Esau, what happened to me in my childhood was this. And this is why I did these certain things. And I'm sorry, please, can you forgive me? He bows to the ground seven times. He offers himself to Esau as a servant, and he's willing to make restitution. This is a guy who is walking his talk. He did something wrong, and he's trying to make it right. That's what you were called to in your life that you live in obedience to Jesus Christ. You were called to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Jesus who did nothing wrong and being mocked and insulted, did not retaliate. And it's some of us in our retaliatory responses that have inflicted the harm that we need to make amends for. I'm saying this. There is some benefit to offering restitution. Exodus 22 Verse 14, the Bible says, if anyone borrows an animal from their neighbor and it is injured or dies while the owner is not present, they must make restitution. Restitution is a godly biblical thing. And if that's what's required to make some relationships in your life that you've led down the wrong path, back on the right path, make restitution. Now, this is separate and apart from forgiveness. Trent, now what you're saying is I got to make restitution if I've done wrong. But what if someone has wronged me? Should I expect restitution from them? Forgiveness does not involve restitution. Forgiveness and amendments are, are two different processes. In the amendment-making process, I've got to be willing to make restitution. 
in the forgiveness process, I got to let stuff go and let God deal with it. There's two totally different things. If you need to make amendments, it's your responsibility to walk your talk. Be willing to go the second mile to, in, to, to endure suffering. Imagine that. Suffering for the Western Christian. That is so unheard of. Imagine you would have to deal with a little bit of that. Poor you. We've got to be willing to suffer, to make restitution, to walk our talk and right our wrongs. That's Jacob's attitude. And guess what? He's successful. He's successful. That's the success of Jacob. He says this in the last half of verse 10. Esau, to see your face today is like seeing the face of God since you've received me favorably. You know, in Matthew 22, when some people ask our Lord Jesus Christ what the most important command is, he has an answer. Can you imagine how long people have been trying to answer that for their entire lives? Yeah, but which one of these is the most important? You know, Jesus says this. Love, this is Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then he puts some feet to people's faith. If you're going to live like this, here's what this looks like. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets literally hang on these two commandments. So the the simple Christian life is a life built on renewing relationships. That's what the Christian life is all about. If we're really going to walk our talk in Jesus Christ, if we're really going to sit here on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or attend a house church... Or any other thing in God's service. We have to also be men and women who are willing to renew and reconcile relationships. Loving our neighbor as loving self according to Jesus is the most elementary, immature spiritual discipline you have to learn before you can move forward in your spiritual walk. If you are not loving your neighbor... If you are not reconciling and renewing relationships, if you are not working towards some amendment-making process, you are not growing and you don't get to grow closer to God. There are Christians all over the world today that are meeting that have not grown an inch in their spiritual maturity for decades potentially. You want to know why? It's not because they're not attending church, because they are. It's not because they're not reading God's Word, because they are. It's not because they don't know all the right songs to say and all the right phrases to say and all the right people to shake hands with because they're doing all those things. You know what they're not doing? They're not going back to the people that they have wronged and bowing down seven times and saying, man, everything I got is because of God's grace. I lay myself at your feet as your servant. Let me make restitution. Please receive me favorably. They're not doing it. And they're not getting close to God because they're not. I've thought and prayed a lot about how to preach that, that verse. That's just really cool. There aren't many times in Scripture where somebody gets to see God's face. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a deal with uh, that people were afraid if they saw the face of God, they'd be killed immediately. Moses hid his face. And then I think, well, it's a Christmas season. Mary got to see the face of God, you know, in Jesus. 
How can we, and, and, there, and there's that idea, you know, how can we really know? How do we know if God is real? How can we really get in touch with God? It's like Jesus was crucified, you know, millennia ago, and now we're here and we've got his word. Is there a, is there a way we can see? Is there a way we can get in touch? This is the secret right here. You want to feel God's power in your life? You want to see God's face? Then get out of your comfort zone a little bit and put some feet to your faith. And find people that you have wronged and make amends. And they're not all necessarily going to receive you favorably. Not everybody I tried to make amends to when I was in my amendment-making process, which technically never ends. That's another sermon. Not everybody received me favorably, but the ones that did, this is the testimony. And for those of you that experienced it, this is the testimony. So don't let the enemy deceive you into thinking it's not going to be worth it. To see someone's face implies a closeness. If you're regularly seeing the face of God, I would attest you're close to God. And based on our teaching today and the scripture we've read, with clarity I can say making amends is a way to grow closer to God. And that's the greatest commandment right there in in, in step A and step B. Be willing to make amends. And in doing so, you're going to grow closer to others. And more importantly, you're going to grow closer to God. I don't know what the need is in your life. My hope is that at some level, God has brought some names or people to mind that you need to seek out and make some amends towards. My hope is that you'll put some feet to your faith. Sometimes that can be a really scary uh, process, and we need people to share in that journey. When I conclude, we invite you to come forward and, and be prayed over. And let us love you. Some of us who have walked that path, let us encourage you. Maybe you've not even been baptized into Christ and you don't know the first thing about what it would even mean to see God's face in another who received you favorably as you were looking to make amendments with them. Whatever the need is in your life, I want to challenge you to come forward while you stand and we sing.